0: Today's scripture reading will be from 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 17. Please stand for the reading of God's word. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual walk that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, the most with Be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to enter. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourself what I say. The cup of blessings that we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break is not a participation in the body of Christ because there is one bread we who are many our one body, for we all partake in the one bread. This is the word of the Lord.
1: <laughs> Can you put it back in there? Well, good morning, church. Good morning. If you don't know me, my name is uh, Ryan. I'm the youth minister here. And usually I preach the first Sunday after uh, Christmas sort of like National Youth Minister Sunday. But this year, I I got bold enough and I said, Brent, can I not preach the Sunday after the lock-in? And he said, I think that can happen. And so now, uh, you you are are stuck with me uh, this morning. Uh, So before we uh, open God's word and learn from it together, let's uh, go to him in prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, we... Recognize this morning that we are only here because you have first worked. That God, though you are holy, though you are transcendent, though you are all powerful, all just, all righteous, all knowing, and God, we are none of those things. We are broken, sinful, undeserving people. You still called us to Yourself, united us to Yourself through Your Son. And so we gather this morning, first God, to bow in reverence and in adoration and in worship for who You are and how good You are and how powerful You are. God, in the beautiful, salvific work You did through the gospel. God, both in history and in our own hearts. So God, this morning, as we open your word, would it be your truth, the truth that is heard, not my words, but yours. It's in your son's name, all God's people said, amen. Now, I was going to open this sermon with a pretty famous quote that I'm sure a lot of you know from uh, Winston Churchill. And the, the quote goes like this, he says, those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. I'm sure, like you probably heard that in your history class, probably too many times, right? And I think I think it's a great quote, and I wanted to I wanted to you know really build the picture of like Churchill's giving this speech probably during World War II to you know soldiers or or Congress, you know, or you know, Parliament, I guess is what they call it over there. Um, and so I was like, I want to look at Why did he say that? And what what context? And so I I start doing some research about this quote. And I have learned something kind of ironic about the quote. So the quote is, again, those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And the quote has become a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy because it turns out, even though that has been attributed to Winston Churchill over and over and over again, he's actually never said that. Like, we have transcripts of the millions of words that he has said, and those words in that order never came out of his mouth. But what's funny is the quote is actually proved true by that fact, because we fail to look at the history of what Winston Churchill actually said, we repeat the mistake that he said it. So, someone said, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it, and they were right, whoever they were that said that. But what's interesting is that Paul, all the way back when he's writing this letter to the Corinthians, is kind of making the same point. And he's giving the church in Corinth a bit of a history lesson. And he's telling them, it could be summed up as that quote, if you fail to learn history, church, you are doomed to repeat it. But before we get into uh, chapter 10 here. Let's, let's kind of go back and kind of fly by what we've done so far. So remember, 1 Corinthians is is not just a letter in solidarity. Obviously, there's there's 2 Corinthians. But there's this this correspondence going on between the church in Corinth and Paul. And they're writing back and forth, like letters back and forth. And if if, if you're under 25, a letter is this thing that's like an email. And if you're under 20, an email is kind of like a text message. So you can kind of follow that train to figure out what a letter is. So Paul has, uh, the church in Corinth has written to Paul, and Paul's writing back to the Corinthian church, and he's addressing some questions, some concerns with some things they were doing, uh, and to be honest, they're not doing a great job, right? There's some pretty ugly details that come out about the church in Corinth through this letter. And so Paul opens, he encourages them where he can encourage them, uh, and then he begins to instruct and correct, and he says, you're missing the mark, and he emphasizes, right, that the gospel message is a foolish message, and we don't need to trust in eloquent worldly teaching and eloquent worldly wisdom, but cling to this implausible message of the gospel. And then he tells them don't be divided, and he teaches them how to apply church discipline and give clear definitions about our bodies and the biblical sexual ethic, about principles of marriage, and then he talks about food sacrifice to idols. And then last we left off, Paul was teaching the Corinthians about how to properly live out their rights in their Christian freedom. And the reason I wanted to do that, because we start out chapter 10, and he's referencing, it's a continuation of what he's done at the end of 9. So let's look at the tail end of chapter 9, and he says this. This is going to start in verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching my preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So Paul is saying, he's teaching about discipline. Right, he's saying, discipline your bodies, run the race. He's, it's, this is an athletic metaphor here, right? We we get this, right? He's he's talking about boxing, he's talking about running, he's referencing the Olympic games, and so he's saying, you know, discipline yourself, have self control, and then he gives us the reason, he gives us the consequences for when we aren't disciplined. When he picks up in verse ten, so be disciplined. And then he says, for I do not want you to be unaware. I do not want you to be unaware of the consequences that come when you fail to discipline yourself. And primarily this teaching is going to be about the sin of idolatry. He's going to say, if you do not discipline yourselves, you will fall into worshiping idols. And so he, first he starts out, he gives this history of idolatry. Specifically, Israel's history of idolatry. And he's making all of these Old Testament references to God's people, the Israelites. If all the kids were in here, I'd be like, who are God's people? And they'd say, the Israelites. Uh, They did it at Christmas. It was awesome. And so God's people, the Israelites, and they time after time after time slip into this sin of idolatry. And so Paul starts out at the beginning, and he's defining who these people are. He's building up their credibility in uh, the eyes of the Corinthian church. He says, they're under the cloud, right? These people were under the cloud. He's referencing the cloud that led the Israelites out of Egypt. It's taking them towards the promised land. He says, then they passed through the sea, right? And so that's probably a reference we all get, passing through the Red Sea when when Moses parted it uh, back in Exodus 14. But then there's this verse, so uh, they were under the cloud, they all passed through the sea, and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That's kind of a weird verse, so let's pump the brakes. What does that mean? Uh, well, honestly, we could, we could pro- I could probably talk all morning about just that verse, but Bengals at one, cowboys at four. So let's just, we, I, I'll, give you, I'll give you a brief summary. It very simply means this. Moses was a mediator between God and Israel. He was the go-between. People didn't talk to God. Israelites didn't talk to God. They went through Moses, and Moses talked to God. He was the mediator, and not a single Israelite, would have seen the promised land if it weren't for the faith and the obedience, at times imperfect faith and obedience, of Moses. So when it says they were baptized into Moses, it means they, the Israelites, get to reap the benefit of Moses' faith and obedience. Namely in their escape from Egypt and entrance into the promised land. So when they're baptized into Moses, it means they reap the benefits of Moses' faith and obedience as the mediator. So they're baptized into Moses, and then Paul moves on from baptism, and he starts to talk about what they ate. They ate manna from heaven. They drank from the rock. And this is likely a reference to Moses striking the rock that God told him to in Exodus 17. So later in Numbers, God is going to tell Moses to speak to a rock and for water to come from it, and he's not going to do it, and he's going to strike it again, and he's going to be punished for that. But I don't think that's—put that one out of your mind— this is where he's saying God told him to strike the rock and let water flow from it that it will sustain the people. And so Paul, what he's doing in these opening verses is he's painting a picture. A beautiful picture of what God does for his people. He's saying they are recipients of... Of God's blessing. They're recipients of God's deliverance. They're recipients of God's nourishment, of God's guidance. He gave them safe passage from the greatest enemy they could have ever faced. He gave them bread that literally fell from heaven. He produced water from a rock to sustain them. It's this this beautiful picture of how much God cares for and takes care of his people. And then Paul says this in verse 5, nevertheless with most of them God was not pleased. what? So, okay, God is, okay, he's, we're baptized into Moses, we're delivered from, from Egypt, from slavery, we, we go into the promised land, we've been given food from heaven, we've been given water from the rock, and God was not pleased with us. It was like, if that's how God treats the people he's not pleased with, how do you think he treats the people that he is pleased with, right? Like, he was displeased with them, and he gave them water, and bread, and deliverance. yes, Because God's gifts, first thing we can learn, God's gifts are not determined by our performance. God's gifts are not determined on our performance for him. Before Paul even references why God is displeased, he shows us how good God is, how gracious God is, how giving God is. He shows us the beauty of God's character before he even talks about why God is displeased with his people. But why was he displeased? We'll keep reading on, verse 5. So, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So, when it says they were overthrown in the wilderness, you, you may have a little footnote in your Bible that says they were laid low in the wilderness, uh, but it's another way of just that they were punished. They were punished by their wandering in the wilderness because of their idolatry. And and Paul makes a quote here. He quotes Exodus thirty-two, and this is a very familiar story to us. Aaron and uh, the Israelites have made a golden calf while Moses is up on the mountain, and it says, "So this is Exodus thirty-two five. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation." And said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt up offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drank and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. So remember the story, they had melted all their earrings and their jewelry and they had built this uh, this icon of a, of a calf. And God says they have corrupted themselves with the worship of this false idol. After God has rescued them, after God has guided them, after God has sustained them, the Israelites needed more. They needed an icon. They needed a statue, right? Their faith was so small that they needed to see something more than a cloud or a flaming pillar or a a mountain that's covered in smoke and lightning. They needed a cow, yeah, I don't, I don't know either. I don't know. But that's what they needed. So Moses goes down. This is important. Moses goes down, and this is what he does. He, he makes them grind up the calf, the, the statue. He makes them grind it up, and they put it in water, and they all have to drink it. This gold dust water, which would, you could probably buy from like some New York restaurant for like 500 bucks or something these days. But as a sign of repentance, God makes them drink this, this drink that's made of their own idol, and then he sends a plague as his punishment. So that's the, the first example that Paul gives from history. But he doesn't stop there. If that's not a bad enough picture of Israel's idolatry, Paul keeps going. Verse 8, we must not engage or indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. This is not a story we learned in Sunday school. Uh, this, is a, this is a reference to Numbers 25, and the Israelites, they begin to disobey God by sleeping around with and marrying pagan worshipers and making sacrifices to these false gods. And in fact, if you go back to Numbers 25, it says they, that Israel yoked himself to Baal. It's like they hitched God to this false god, Baal. So they yoked Yahweh, the, the one true God, to a false God. They said, these are the same. And so what does God do? Well, Paul references, he sends a plague that kills 23,000 of them in a single day. And the plague wasn't lifted until a man who had been sleeping around and marrying uh, uh, pagan worshipers, a man and his wife, they were run through with a spear as punishment. And then the plague relented. So, you the golden calf as an idol. And then they began to yoke themselves uh, to Baal and, and, and marry these Baal worshippers. Uh, but Paul says, hey, I've got, w- I got one more for you. i got one more example for you. Look at verse 10. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. This is another Old Testament reference to Numbers 21. Uh, Israel, get this. They're wandering in the wilderness, and they start to grumble and complain about God, which we're used to. They do that all the time. But specifically, they start complaining about the food that they've been given to eat. Like, there is bread coming from the sky. They wake up in the morning, and it's like it snowed, and there is there is manna on the ground for them to eat. And they're like, can we get something else? It's like, you got, you got anything else? Anything not lower carbs, maybe, God. And so what is, they they grumble about the food, they grumble about the water, and so God sends these snakes to their camp, and they start biting people. And many Israelites died as a result of this, this grumbling. And so God tells Moses, hey, build a serpent, put it on a staff, lift it up, walk around camp, and anyone who looks at the serpent raised up on the staff, they will be healed, and they won't die. And thus concludes Paul's incredibly encouraging history of Israel. Where it started, right, on a high note of God's character, he's, he's good, he's generous, he's giving, and then he says over and over and over again, you choose to worship other things besides me. And so why does Paul do that? Why does he give us, why does he give the church in Corinth this history lesson? Well, he, guess what, he tells us, thank you for asking. Verses 6, verses 11, these things took place as examples these stories of Israel's idolatry, they're an example to us. They're to show us what God is like, how God's people are to act and not to act. And it's not, I don't think it's a scare tactic that makes us think, oh, God's going to strike me down if I commit the sin of idolatry. I think if we look a little bit closer, what, what Paul is doing is he's showing us how easily idolatry sneaks in to all of our lives, how easily it slipped into the lives of the Israelites, and how easily it can slip into our lives. And telling us about Israel's history of of idolatry, he's constructing a mirror for our own experience of idolatry. If we go back to those examples that Paul's given, and we see that they all have to do with something, like, kind of actually normal. Like, I know, like, our 21st century brains, like, think that it's all super weird, but let's look at it a little closely, break it down, and it's actually rather ordinary. See, idol worship, the worship of statues and icons, that was normal in Egypt. Like, that's what, like, we know today, like, we think of Egyptians, we think of, like, that jackal guy and some of the other ones. I can only think of the jackal guy. Um, But they've got these idols, right? And that's what the Israelites had been subject to for years and years and years. It was normal for them to want to worship an idol. Like that was just that's that's what that had been done in front of them for hundreds of years. And then the second case uh, with the 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 marrying the pagans, it's just about marriage, it's just about sexuality. Israelites, they saw others that they were attracted to, that they wanted to be married to, they wanted to fulfill their sexual and romantic fulfillment in this other person and they said that's more important than God's laws. I know God said don't marry pagans, don't intermarry with pagans, but I I think I want to, so I'm just going to ignore God, and I'm going to do this. In the third case, it was just about food, right? They were just grumbling about the food. God was providing heavenly food for them, and they wanted something better. See, when we break those stories down to their, their simplest forms, they could be about any of us. We've all looked to something other than God to provide for us. We've all looked for something other than God to guide us out of a difficult situation. We've all looked for sexual or romantic satisfaction outside of God's commands. We've all grumbled and complained in spite of all the good gifts that God has given us. Because as it turns out, what Paul is saying is is not that idolatry is just a problem in Israel's history. He's saying idolatry is a problem in human history idolatry is a human problem and because and we know this because we go back to any sin committed it's the at the very core at the very bottom is the sin of idolatry idolatry is not always happening at the surface right we talk about our youth sometimes and and some of you will be familiar with this we talk about our head what we think we talk about our heart what we feel what we desire and we talk about our hands what we do and sometimes idolatry does not happen just with our hands, it starts with our hearts. It happens on the level of our desires. And when our desires are twisted, are changed to serve something else or to serve ourselves instead of serving God, we are committing idolatry. When our desires are twisted to serve someone else or to only serve ourselves instead of serving God, we are committing idolatry. See, the only reason the only reason that we would ever break God's commandments is because we love something or want something more than we love or want to please God. That's the only time we break God's commandments. Because God said I don't don't have this thing, but I want it, and so I'm going to take it. I'm serving myself. Right, I love my own desires more than I love what God has desired for me. So while it may not be a pagan idol or intermarrying with pagan uh, uh, priestesses or whatever it may be, it's just an idol of the self. We put our self on the throne and say, I get to determine what I do when I do it. Martin Luther described idolatry as whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God your functional Savior. And the reason that this is so important is because it changes the way we live our everyday lives, not these big conceptual things, but our everyday like habits. If we, if we rightly recognize that there's this idle war going on in our hearts, we can actively combat it because our hearts, our desires, our emotions, they are molded, they are shaped by the things that we think that we say, that we do. Our daily habits, our daily rituals, our daily practices, that's what shapes our desires and our relationships. And a lot of times, we think about th- those things being neutral, right? Like, oh, it doesn't really matter what I do on an hourly basis, a minute basis, a daily basis, right? It's like, th- those are things that are kind of neutral. But Paul is saying, look, even the food they ate was shaping them. Someone said, Idolatry is not just the things that we do, it's the air that we breathe. And it reminds me of this, this story. I love this story. Brent is like already knows what story I'm about to tell. But this, this author named David Foster Wallace, he talks about this story about these three fish. And there's these two young fish, and they're swimming along, happy, and they happen to swim by this older fish. And he's swimming the other way. So you got two fish coming, you got an older fish coming this way. And the older fish nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And they don't respond and they keep swooning on for a bit. And then eventually one of them breaks the silence and goes, what the heck is water? See, idolatry is the water that we swim in. And we have to be able to identify it before we can even do anything about it. Those young fish didn't even know they were in the water. We can't be like the young fish who don't know what water is. We've been given the warning. Paul is giving us the warning. We know that we have a history of idolatry and that those temptations are lurking in every corner of our hearts. And I want to pay really close attention to something Paul says in verse 12. He gives a really clear warning that I think applies to a lot of us in this room. He said, if anyone thinks he stands, take heed, lest he fall. He says, if you think this is not you, if you're in the church and you're hearing this letter and you can't identify the idols in your life, then you are the one that needs to take heed. The people that know they're broken, the people that know that they're serving idols, they've got a step above you. We have to be able to know our idols in order to kill our idols. So, for us in here, the, you know, the, the religious folk, the ones that wake up and come to church on a Sunday morning, idolatry is rarely explicit. We're rarely worshiping clearly other things other than God. We have to train ourselves to recognize it in ourselves. And our idolatry usually looks like I want Jesus and something, right? Like I want Jesus and I want to spend my money how I see fit. whatever I want. Or I want Jesus and I want to sleep with whoever I want, whenever I want, no matter my marital status. Or I want Jesus and I want to be able to belittle people and own people on social media. Or I I want Jesus and I want to just pick up the bottle even though I'm already feeling the last one. So to see our idols, we have to ask the question, what drives me? What do you daydream about? What do you long for? What Are your actions pulling you towards? Because those are the things that are usually pulling on our heartstrings and twisting our desires away from the worship and the adoration of God. And so we should be careful that we don't desire something so much that we yoke it to God like the Israelites did with Baal. There is nothing on this earth, no desire, no temptation, no money, no political power, no authority, nothing that is worthy enough to be yoked to God. When we desire something too much and we have an idol in our hearts, we become double-minded. We live a double life. We're like the adulterous wife Gomer in the book of Hosea who was married to Hosea and Hosea was nothing but faithful nothing but loyal and Gomer continued to turn her by life back to prostitution and back to adultery despite all of Hosea's love and affection church our desire should be to be characterized by genuineness our consistency our sincerity our authenticity and when we fail to identify and repent of the idols that are in our life we give up all of those traits in exchange for momentary, perishable pleasures. So we have this deep history of idolatry. It's a sin that humans have been committing since the Garden of Eden, and we keep committing it over and over and over again. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, look at the answer Paul gives, starting in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Now, at first glance, we can read these verses, and it looks like and sounds like a verse about our efforts. It's like Paul is saying, so go out there and and get it done. Like, if it's not that hard, just, just flee, for, flee from temptation. God's not going to give you anything you can't handle, right? You're sensible, right? You get a sensible person, get it together, go do it. Like, we can read that and we can be fooled that Paul is telling us to, like, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and work hard and kill our idols and, and by our own strength, go and serve God. But nothing can be further from the truth. This isn't a text about how we solve. The problem of idolatry. It's about God's solution to idolatry, and I'll tell you. I, I first read this text when when I when when it was the one I was going to preach, and I was like, I'm really not. It's like uh, don't don't serve idols. Okay, got it. Um, but as I've read it and as I've studied it, I actually think this is one of the greatest pieces of gospel writing that has ever been undertaken. Like, Paul has done something masterful with this text. Like, do you remember those, uh, like, connect the dot activities you would do in school? Maybe, like, dot one and dot two and dot three, and you draw a line, you know, from one to two, two to three, three to four. And it's like you're going and you're, like, trying to figure out, like, what the picture is. And it's not until you get to the very end that you're like, oh, it's a fish or it's a dinosaur or it's a dragon or whatever. You know, it's like, I think Paul has sketched out a little bit of a gospel, connect the dots with us here. And if we take the time to connect all of those dots, it paints a great, beautiful gospel picture. And he gives us this final clue here in verses 16 and 17. So he goes on from talking about fleeing from idolatry, and he says, "The cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation or, or is it not a participation in the blood of Christ?" The blood that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are of one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Why does Paul take this leap from idolatry into a teaching about communion and the Lord's Supper and eating the bread? But it should make us think of something. If we're reading closely, alarm bells should go off in our heads and say, wait a minute. He talked about the bread earlier. The Israelites, they ate the bread and they were one people and they were baptized into Moses. But now Paul is saying, we take the bread, not spiritual bread from heaven, but we feast on the bread of life that was sent from heaven. And we aren't baptized into the imperfect faith and obedience of an imperfect mediator like Moses. Like the Israelites were. No, we are baptized into the perfect faith and the perfect obedience of a perfect mediator, Jesus. And it wasn't a rock that was struck that gave us water for our bodies. It was Christ that was struck and that gave us living water that whoever drinks of it will never be thirsty again. Paul says it the rock was Christ. And we don't have to drink the ground-up gold of the idols that we worshiped like the Israelites did at the base of the mountain because Jesus drank the cup of wrath for you and for me, and he drank it empty. There's nothing left. And none of us had to be run through with a spear to stop the plagues like, the, like they did in Numbers 21 because Christ was pierced for our transgressions. We didn't have to look at the serpent draped over a staff to heal our bodies. All we have to look to is the tortured Savior that was put up on a cross. And it is not our bodies that are healed. It is our souls. Humanity has a history of idolatry. And for God to solve humanity's history of idolatry, he had to enter human history. Remember verse 5? Nevertheless, With most of them, the Lord was not pleased. And I asked, what does the Lord do with the ones he is pleased with? If that's how he treats the one he's not pleased with, there's only one he's ever been pleased with. And the Lord was pleased with his son, Jesus, who was perfectly obedient, who was perfectly faithful, and that is what happened to him. He was crushed so that no temptation would overtake us. He was killed so that we might have an escape from our sin. He was broken so that we can break this bread of life together as God's people in faith and in obedience as an act of worship together. We don't have to escape from our idolatry. We don't have to break the the, the chains of our sin. We don't have to break the chains of temptation because Christ has already done it on him. On your behalf, on on my behalf, we can be united to Christ. And his perfect righteousness and his perfect obedience can be applied to you and it can be applied to me. He meets us in the midst of our everyday lives, moment by moment. When we are adulterous and when we are idolatrous, Jesus is loyal and Jesus is faithful. We flee from idolatry, yes, but more importantly... We cling to the cross. We cling to Christ because He constantly and loyally clings to us. Let's pray. God, Your Word is like a balm on our hearts, it's like a salve to our souls. God would be be renewed by the message of your gospel this morning would we not be worried and anxious and nervous about all the things we do wrong but God instead could we drink from the rock the living water that will never Run dry, and we will drink of it, and we will never get thirst again. Would we rest in the perfect sacrifice, the perfect love, the perfect work, the resurrection, the ascension of your Son Jesus, who now, when we look to him on the cross, when we see our sin, when we see the payment made, God, would we cling to you? And God, with that nearness, would it fill us with your spirit so that we might walk each step day by day, growing in faithfulness, growing in obedience? God, we will never be perfectly faithful and loyal to you. But the good news of the gospel is we don't have to be. Because Jesus was already perfectly faithful and loyal and obedient for us. And it's in his name we pray. All God's people said. Amen. We're going to have a time of response. If, If you don't know Jesus, if you don't know about his life and his sacrifice and his resurrection and his ascension and you want to take that for yourself and you want to kill the idols in your life and you want to repent of your sin I'll be up here, Brent will be up here there will be people next to you that would love to tell you about Jesus tap one of them on the shoulder if you don't want to make the long walk up here but if if you're already in Christ I pray that you would stand and you would sing and you would worship for the good news of the gospel that has been given to us that we can know by God's word. Let's stand and sing.